You're listening to the OKR Podcast. We talk about the power of lateral alignment and outcome mindset and empowering teams to do their best work from anywhere. We also talk about operating as a digital company, which is crucial now. Hear journeys, learnings, and victories from our guest speakers and get expertise from our hosts to scale your leadership capacity and operate with high impact, trust, and efficiency. Here's your host, Deidre Packnod. Cindy, thank you so much for sitting down with me today and having this conversation. Yeah, great to see you again and to get this opportunity to just sit down and chat a little bit. Saving lives and curing or helping people with chronic diseases thrive is a lofty mission, right? And in many ways has more purpose in it than, than lots of organizations and lots of people get to enjoy and get to contribute to. So you lead the IT organization. Talk to us a little bit about how your vision for and how you lead your IT organization to contribute to and enable AstraZeneca to fulfill its mission. Um, One of the things that we're doing, especially in this kind of digital era, is thinking about the way in which, you know, technology can be used to really change the way healthcare is provided and kind of reimagine what's possible. And so we've been, you know, looking at our corporate ambition, our company strategy, thinking then what was our IT 2025 strategy that would help really propel us into that. So we've spent about nine, 10 months developing that strategy. We've just completed all of our operating model changes that were needed to really support the strategy. And now we're kind of focused in on how do we get those ways of working ironed out so that, you know, these new teams, these new constructs can really work at speed. Yep. And really come into picture. It seems like actually might be quite an exciting time to be a CIO in a pharmaceutical company, right? Data and digital seem so central to discovery. Yeah. So I think, you know, we talk about the industrial revolution, the digital revolution. I think the next revolution will be biological, where we get into hyper-personalization of just about everything. And, And so being in the life sciences business has just been phenomenal to be kind of at the forefront, again, of of that kind of industry leading change. We've been really excited about, you know, the way in which we've been using AI and and data to really advance drug discovery. Think about how we use our clinical trials. We're using a lot of virtual reality in ways that I guess I never expected in in a pharmaceutical company. Do you think that maybe first the pandemic and then this year, the war in in Europe and the consequences of all that, is that accelerating how we think about technology and AI and data and how we use it to advance the business? We just saw an explosion of technology, whether it was a movement to team in, in, you know, eight days, looking at digital detailing, which is the way in which we were going to interact with our healthcare providers, you know, we rolled out a whole new digital way of doing that in, in less than two weeks. And People were just focused on how do I get it done, not if I could do it. And that was a major shift. We're trying to work on how do we keep that, you know, kind of momentum and and way of working now into this next chapter. Yeah. There was a sort of a prevailing myth, and and in my experience, particularly a myth in in large companies where it's, well, we change slow. And it's hard to know which came first, the chicken or the egg. Do you change slow because you think you do? Or do you change slow because you couldn't do it any faster than that? And and I think for lots of organizations, you learned that actually you can go much, much faster. Yeah. Well, and I think coming from consumer goods, I remember my first town hall. I told the team, I said, I want to take, you know, 90% of, of the time and, and 75% of the cost out of everything we do. And I think there was this, <laughs> you know, apprehension of what is she talking about? 
And then just a few weeks later, we hit COVID and we were doing it. We were deploying things at speed, making decisions at speed, going in with, with minimum viable products rather than a fully baked, you know, full-fledged system that took us 18 months to design. And I think it's given a lot of companies, including our own, this confidence that we can do it differently. And so that's been really fun. Still a change journey, still, you know, needing to drive that alignment across the organization, but a huge accelerant. The, the dividends actually for the business on, on moving faster and actually believing that it's possible, just a belief system is unbelievably potent, actually. Let's turn to how you move from, we're going to respond, uh, we're going to mobilize to now the 2025 strategy. And how do you sustain and maintain that urgency? And, and maybe it's not urgency, maybe it's actually velocity and, and value velocity. How do you think about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think for us, one of the major shifts was we are a federated business and have a lot of local autonomy. And as a result, we had a lot of, you know, different systems that were quite localized. So sometimes, you know, areas where, you know, we might have, you know, duplicate systems because things were slightly different in one country. And again, that's quite typical in a, in a federated, you know, kind of business model. What we're really, you know, looking at now is how do we get scale and speed by, you know, using kind of standardization as a competitive advantage, thinking about where do we need to be different and where can, can we actually get speed and velocity by, you know, reuse and, and scaling things that we've already tried in the company. And it's been great to see a bit of that momentum continuing to, to accelerate. People are more interested in it now than I would say they were pre, pre-COVID. And I think all of a sudden we realize, wow, we, we can work differently and really increase that velocity. So that's been really exciting. That's fun. It's fun. And you have, I think, a clear point of view on the difference between doing digital and being digital. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah. So I think for so many people, including myself, when you first get exposed to this new way of working, it's really typically, you know, led by the technology. What can I do with AI? How can I use blockchain? And you're going and looking for great ideas. You're looking for, hey, you know, what is a use case that I could apply this to? Once you learn, and that's a really important step in an organization, but once you kind of learn about what these technologies can do, what you want to do is then shift into a mode where you're thinking about what are the great problems that need solving rather than these great ideas that we're dreaming up. And what I like about that is it really focuses everyone and gets everyone aligned to this is the problem at hand. And it can be a, a, you know, a problem with the way you work today, or it could be a more societal problem or bigger kind of visionary problem. But what's great is all of a sudden it stops being, oh, we're, we're going to do these digital things or we have this digital strategy too. We have a business strategy that's enabled through digital. And that's a fairly major shift that I think companies need to do because when you're doing digital, you're in experimentation mode and you're looking at all these different options. What you really then want to do as you're transforming is think about which of those can we scale? Because really you need scale to have AI and, and the quantity of data to get these kind of new and novel insights. And when it becomes pervasive and it's democratized and it's just the way that everyone does their job rather than this group of people, you know, over here that do digital, I think that's when we see the exponential benefits of digital really helping companies to thrive. Mm-hmm. Really part of how we show up as opposed to a team on the side. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's interesting, the um, notion of falling in love with the problem, the business problem to be solved versus falling in love with the, the tech and, and yeah. going in search of a problem to be solved, right? Yeah. And of course, you have to, that experimentation helps understand the possibilities, um, but the possibilities absent a meaningful business problem are, you know, science projects, yeah, basically. Absolutely. So as you think about that transition to just focus on the business problem, applying those technologies, but applying them in the context of a problem and new ways of working. How have you structured the IT organization? How do you, maybe said differently, do you think about teaming today and on the path to 2025 in the same way you thought about it five years ago? Definitely not. So I think for me, it's this whole switch from product centricity into patient centricity. I'm moving from the industrial era into um, the digital or or kind of patient-centric or consumer-centric world, you have to work completely differently. Um, The industrial era really was centered around, you know, organizational silos that became very efficient. You knew what product you were going to build, and then you could organize yourself in a silo to be the most efficient at producing that. As we move into more this digital era, this patient-centric world, what patients want and what they're demanding is changing at a speed that it's really agility that you need to be able to respond and, and thrive in that world. And as a result, these cross-functional, you know, multidisciplinary agile teams is really how we get work done. And I think that's a big shift because we've all, you know, had fairly successful careers working in a different way. And now we're asking people to kind of take all those things that, you know, helped you be so successful up to this point and think about work differently and be willing to collaborate more and not be as command and control as leaders, but really democratize decision-making and and drive empowerment. And that can be scary, especially if you don't feel like you can, you know, keep control in that kind of environment. And so for us, a a lot of it is we went from more siloed R&D, commercial, finance, IT organization structure to we still have those, but now we have far more horizontal uh, teams around data and AI you know, obviously infrastructure and cyber has always been a big one. We put together a new what we call strategy and execution team that really helps that alignment. I've got quite a large team. And so when you think of that many people around the world, how do you, how do you keep everyone aligned and, and, you know, on the same page in terms of vision, strategy, and, and how we'll execute? Yeah. Let's dig more into that strategy and execution function. That You have a very talented team and you... And not everybody has a either strategy execution or strategy ops or operations function, but they're they're increasingly common. And it's a I think often a recognition that if we don't have an approach to operationalizing the strategy, maybe maybe we're not <laughs> operationalizing it, right? It's, or it's a little too ad hoc, it's a little too loose. What led you to put that function, that team in place? When did you do it? Why did you do it? Yeah, so for me, it was one of the first things that I did. So it was one of the first big horizontals I created. And again, it's this movement of when you have a, a more, you know, decentralized, you know, kind of R&D IT or commercial IT, the alignment, you're closer to the people. And the alignment is a bit easier because you're having more interactions on what you want. When we elevated that to come more at the enterprise level in this digital era and how we had to work together, all of a sudden, you know, we, we more than quadrupled the amount of people that needed to know the same thing. And so having that alignment and driving our measurements against the strategy and making sure people had a shared kind of vision was going to be really, really important. So it was one of the, 
the kind of structural things I did first in order to to then allow the rest of the organization to to move into this new operating model. Sort of an unlocking of the potential for that. You mentioned this a bit earlier. It can be uncomfortable when to give up control. When one of the, I think one of the growth opportunities for almost every company is is actually trapped in what I'll call lateral alignment. You called horizontal alignment, yeah. right? Where how we work together is actually where the next real growth yeah. burst can come from, and where and when we don't work together, value is is lost. But the the borders of our functions, which of course are also silos, right? The borders of our functions in some ways are comforting habits. Yeah. Right? You can just yeah. rely on the hierarchy and the function lines to set the rules, to set the construct, to even to determine who's in the know and who's not in the know and who you should pay attention and who you should include and who not, right? Yeah. And there's a, for a lot of organizations, there's a lot less history, reference points, examples of what it would look like if we were to be as more focused on laterally aligned than we were on the, the vertical history, right? Yeah. And that vertical sort of function silo thing, that's 100 years old as a management construct. And lots yeah. of us grew up relying on that. What are some of the cultural dynamics that you saw in trying to use a more, I'll call it a, a horizontal or lateral version versus the traditional vertical? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it's human nature to, you know, you're in your family, you're in your group, you know, that self of, do I belong? And, and all of that is incredibly strong. We came up with a concept called One IT because people would talk about, you know, hey, you know, can I take a secondment into commercial IT? And I'm like, we're all One IT. Like, you, of course you can move around and, and do that. And so this mantra about One IT has really helped us because it allows us to think about ourselves as one group and then depending on what the business need is, we can flow to that work. We don't have to stay in this rigid hierarchy. And I always had 50 people in my team, so I still have 50 people in my team. But more allow ourselves to kind of flow to what was important. And, you know, COVID showed us that. All of a sudden, we found ourselves in the vaccine business, and uh, we had to stand up whole new teams to, to kind of be part of that and address that. So I think one of the things is helping people to see that the part of a bigger environment. So not only just in IT, but 1AZ, like how can things that we're learning in R&D help us progress the agenda in commercial, et cetera. And so I think that's a journey that most companies are having to go through as we go from this industrial era into this digital way of working. And so we had a lot of that. We're still working through the ways of working. Sometimes the clarity is a little bit different. So when it used to be within your own team, you know, you were typically in the same staff meetings. You knew how to, you know, prioritize because you had a shared, you know, kind of understanding. And now all of a sudden we've got some cross-functional teams and maybe my thing isn't the most important. You know, I'm, those teams are having to trade off and balance off across different areas. But the benefit of being able to then scale, those teams know what they've built once and then can actually offer it up to another area far more quickly than each of them building them themselves. So we've needed to spend more time on our OKRs. Uh, that's something that we've been introducing. And that's been a big cultural shift. Again, you know, how do you get shared alignment? How do you, you know, look at what is the contribution of all the teams towards something? So when we were on that process, we started looking and we took the strategy and we have four pillars and each of them have two priorities. And we started working with each of the teams to say, what is your contribution to that uh, priority? And what we found was some people, you know, had the same thing. They all thought they were playing the same role. 
So we, we could see where the duplication was happening. And then in some areas, we had nobody thinking it was their responsibility. <laughs> and, and so we could, again, really then have more rich conversations about that. So this contribution map, I think, was one of the key things that we did that really kind of helped us. Yeah, sort of redefining as managers, maybe particularly managers in the, in the middle of the org, redefining how you think about your value to the org by the impact and the contribution you make, not the headcount yeah. that you have on yeah. the team or maybe the level that you're at in the moment, right? Well, and I think that's one of these big shifts between this industrial era and the digital era, because in industrial era, it really was about what is you know the remit of your team? How many people do you have? How much budget do you control? And the bigger that was, the higher up in the organization you typically were because you know you need more experience, et cetera, to manage that. I think in a digital era, it's about small teams, small amounts of money doing incredibly impactful things. And um, you know, so so that's something that we talk about on a really regular basis is that it's it's more about the impact you have than your input. You know, it's not about these activities and these initiatives and how many projects you have simultaneously, but can you ruthlessly prioritize to the point of impact and and do those things that are most impactful rather than just keeping you busy? Yeah, yeah. What value are you really yeah. creating? And I think the for human beings, the, the closer you can connect to the value you create, and I think that's awkward at first, right? Because we're, yeah. we're very activity-oriented and we've trained people to be activity-oriented. But when we move... When we move them, they move themselves to a place where, like, this is the value I create. I think you you create a different relationship to what it is you're doing during the day and how important what you're doing is. And I, I think it's obviously helping people with OKRs. There's a struggle the first time around, second or third, yeah. um, something you only do four times a year. So you don't get a lot of practice at setting them very often. But, but as you do it and you go through the conversation, you realize how hard it is yeah. actually to start thinking about, not for leaders, it's easy for leaders, but it's harder for their teams to yeah. think about, I've got a decade or two decades of like, knowing what's in my backlog and of doing activity and getting projects and deliverables. I haven't even thought about like what impact does that create? How might I measure the value that's created here? And it's awkward at first until it's not, right? And then it's a bit liberating, like, well, this is the value I'm creating. It just feels different to be able to talk about that, yeah. but it's new language. Yeah. Well, and I think intellectually people buy into this new way of working fairly easily. But to your point, it's the, the muscle memory of how do I work in this new way? And, you know, when life gets busy, it's easy to revert back to what's familiar. And so it is a hard journey. And, you know, I've been talking to a lot of the team. I'm like, but that's the transformation. That's, that's what we're here to do. So it's okay if it's hard. It's okay if it's not perfect. You know, I think one of the other cultural things that, that we've been facing is, you know, it used to be that red statuses were bad. And in a industrial era where you're doing things repeatedly, you're striving for efficiency, a red in that context may not be good. But in this dynamic world where things are changing, what you were doing today is very different than what's going to be needed you know, next week from you. Of course, you're going to have things that don't go perfectly well. What's really nice is that because you're spending less time, less money, less resource, if it doesn't go perfectly well, you can make a decision. Do we just stop? Maybe, maybe we thought it was a good idea, but you know that hypothesis isn't proving out. Or you're in these short interval reviews and, and retrospectives that you can course correct. 
much more quickly. So encouraging people to be really transparent really quickly when they can no longer progress something on their own and they need some help, I think is a new competency for for most of us. Yeah. Yeah. Where the the habit of fearing the red and uh, trying to camouflage it to the longest last possible moment um, is built into a lot of cultures. I think the the cadence of OKRs, right, the quarterly cadence of knowing what we know now, given what we think is true in the universe, which is a bunch of assumptions, this is what we think are the best outcomes in this 90-day period. And then you pursue those at the end of the 90 days. The, to me, one of the most powerful parts is you say, okay, was a hypothesis where our assumptions true, right? And some of those assumptions are about how the outside world is going to change. Yeah. We have no control over that, right? And I think all of us have learned that in the last two and a half years <laughs> on a variety of topics. It. That's right. We are not omniscient and we yeah. cannot predict everything. Yeah. But this opportunity to say what changed outside, but also to ask, okay, what did we learn inside? Okay, we bit off more than we can chew. Or, you know, this was a lot harder technically than we understood. We didn't know what we didn't know. All these things like happen in the course of working, right? But having a mechanism for every 90 days to consider them yeah. and to include them and say, what, what are we going to stop, right? And then what are we going to elevate? What was the victory that we, well, that came out better than we thought, right? I think that the cadence of adapting and learning is maybe one of the most powerful things in the OKR method and cycle. Yeah. Well, and I think examining both success and failure, right? Because we've been conditioned to talk about the successes and quietly go fix our failures, right? And I think we're getting a permission now to say, this didn't work the way I thought it was going to work. And so I think part of just that whole cultural change, and to your point, this this frequency and, you know, you know, a lot of times we used to set objectives for somebody for a year and then evaluate them at the end of the year. And again, that works really well in an industrial era, you know, kind of mass production era. When things um, change slowly. When things change very slowly. And so now, you know, one of the things for me, I always try to talk to people about this is, because what you don't want to do is, is you know, say, oh, what, what we used to do isn't, isn't good. It was fit for purpose at the time. It met the business needs we had at the time. It's just the consumer and the patients are changing and their expectations of us are changing, and they want far more say in what products get produced, how they get produced, how they go to market than probably any other you know decade. I think of just my my own daughter. When I was growing up, you'd go to the doctor, and the doctor would tell you, "Hey, this is what's wrong with you. Here's your treatment plan," and you didn't question it. You just kind of went and you know followed it. And I look at, at my daughter, and she goes to the doctor before she goes. She's research things. She's has an opinion. She has questions she wants to ask. They'll sometimes, you know, even, you know, give her a treatment plan and she'll say, well, is there an alternative? So that's hitting all of our industries. That that style and that, you know, kind of consumer voice, patient voice is so strong that we have to be able to adapt. I think that's right. And whether they're consumers or their their patients, and I think in any industry, in any context, what they expect from us has changed dramatically and how well informed they are mm-hmm. before they start a relationship with us, I think is phenomenally different. And you, if you take those changes and you combine them with the rate of change in technology and you combine that with the rate of change in the world, you get the sort of trifecta of high adaptation, high speed, high learning, right? Just to be able to respond and thrive instead of fall 
fall to the wayside. Well, and it's also now their best experience from any other company becomes their expectation of you, right? So now we're used to kind of compete with those in your industry. Now, if, if something's gone really well in the travel industry and they have an app and it makes things seamless and easy, they now expect that out of us, right? And so, again, just a, a reason why this frequent review of what are you trying to achieve? What are those objectives? How are you doing against? Should you continue? Should you stop? Just becoming so important. Yeah, that's great. One of the things that is really golden in the, it, is that you've got the person who feels deeply connected to the strategy and its articulation and communication actually connected to the strategy execution. A lot of, not a lot of times, sometimes I see there's a person who's on point to lead the OKR strategy execution rollout and kind of cadence and cycle around that, but they they haven't actually internalized and maybe even paid any attention to what the strategy is. And at the end of the day, it's actually, are we aligning our effort and our energy on that strategy? That's why we do OKRs in the first instance. But if we leave strategy out of the equation, we have a process without a lot of purpose. Yeah. It becomes methodology rather than really a way of, of, of executing against the strategy. So, I mean, I've always been a big believer of strategy and execution teams go together. It's very difficult if you've got, you know, one group developing a strategy and another group then implementing that. Um, there's something about, you know, having a perspective on both sides that I think just is a bit more powerful and, and kind of moves the needle a bit faster. Yeah. You'll, uh, the other way is a little bit more like waterfall, right? I'll make it up and I'll throw it over the fence and you guys do it, okay? Yeah. And then yeah. and then we spend lots of time, you know, going, oh, but they didn't get the strategy quite right, you know? Mm-hmm. So when you have to execute <laughs> your own strategy, it's a, it's a little bit more uh, robust, I think. Well, yeah, you're a little more connected to whether we could, in fact, execute on that yeah. strategy. So we've talked quite a bit about organizing the team and strategy and the big vision and, and the mission. And of course, when you have a great strategy and a great team and they come together and you're organized to execute it, great things happen. But our teams are under pressure, right? There are a zillion opportunities for what they could do with their careers and where is particularly in technical talent. The war for talent seems like it continues to rage despite inflation and all the other conditions that you would think would be inconsistent. Tell us a little bit about how you're attracting enabling, empowering talent, and, and making sure they're thriving in, uh, in AstraZeneca's environment and, and contributing to AstraZeneca's mission. Yeah. So I think what we saw coming out of COVID is a lot of companies realized they'd been under-investing in technology. And as a result, they've kicked off quite a number of projects and their boards, their management teams have unleashed, you know, a lot of financial investment in technology. And it's kind of created this great resignation that, that we're all living through. And I think for a variety of reasons, there's, there's valid reasons why people want to, you know, look at new opportunities. I think COVID made us question, you know, what was really important to us. For us, it's really about, you know, a holistic approach. We're looking at, uh, we have two big kind of technology centers, uh, one in Chennai, one in Guadalajara. And we've kind of changed the remit of them where they were more service centers in in the past, we're driving a lot of innovation now. And we're starting to see that that's really attracting new talent and helping the existing talent, you know, really see the benefit of, of how they contribute to the company. I think it's important for everyone to feel like they are involved in, in exciting work. And so we've been trying to say, how can we structure work? And in some areas, we brought together strategy teams and execution teams because they were missing, you know, maybe it was our API strategy 
and there was a different leader that was running API execution. And we brought those types of things. So thinking about, do people have meaningful work? Um, because I think that's a, a big retention lever. I think as well, being a little bit, you know, kind of entrepreneurial and thinking about, you know, how can we give people exposure and experience to, to new things? So we started this um, program called P100 and people can sign up and it can be 30% of your time. It can be, you step out of your job and go do this for a couple of months. So kind of um, interesting kind of work. We're leveraging things like hackathons more so that we get that creative kind of environment going. But I think as well, talking a bit more about purpose as a way to attract people. And especially given that we only do life-saving medicines, it is something that I think fills people with a lot of purpose and, and drive and, and, you know, working through, through some of those type of things. So, yeah, I think it, it's something we spend a lot of time as a management team on. And the reality is early in my career, I was very focused on results and, and wasn't, didn't take too long to realize that if you focus on people, they'll give you the results. results. So, so we spend a lot of time on our talent and, you know, making sure that they've got great opportunities, you know, for promotion, great opportunities to do, you know, work that matters. And we're trying our best to, to really start to simplify and focus more on priorities rather than just doing a, you know, a lot of things simultaneously. But, you know, all of that is, you know, a journey, as you know. Yeah. Yeah. And the idea that it's not that you just have a long list of things to do, but that you know the why and you can connect your why to the company's mission. I think that's very powerful for people. And I think the absence of it is dismaying. Yeah. Well, and someone once told me, they're like, if you have, you know, a, a group of people playing soccer, but they don't know which goal is theirs, like, how do you play a game, right? So if people don't understand what the objective is, what the goal is, you know, what's the vision, they're just kind of floundering on a field trying to make sure nobody scores, you know, yeah. because they don't want to accidentally, you know, score an own, you know, an own goal, own goal. So, you know, I think, I think just trying to bring that clarity mm -hmm. is, is really important. I'm going to borrow that one. It's, that's a, um, the perfect analogy. I don't know how we score. <laughs> so I'm just going to focus on preventing anyone from scoring. Yeah. yeah. No, it's good. Okay. So let's wrap up and I'll ask you the, the big, big question. As other CIOs think about how do they take a bold transformation strategy and the construct of new ways of working, how do they mobilize the organization? How do they get people aligned, enabled, and empowered to make their best contribution? What advice would you give them as they think about that? And what advice would you give them in the big picture? And then what advice would you give them on who to partner with? And who do you, who do you take along with you on that journey uh, that might help you be successful? Yeah. So I think, you know, never before has technology played this large of a role in business. And, you know, we've always been an enabler or a business partner. Technology is now creating new business models. And I think the first advice is, you know, you and your team should think of yourselves as business leaders first and technologists second. And when you put that business mindset, all of a sudden, because of your expertise in technology, you're able to help, you know, create new opportunities for your company. And that is a big mindset shift. One of the things we're working on is how do you become more of that thought partner versus just really good at executing what you've been asked? So I think that's probably the first thing. I think the second thing is nothing matters more than the people that you have on your team. So make sure 
that you've got an amazing team. And I have a, an ITLT that is phenomenal. And I just beam when I think about each of them as individuals, but more importantly, how do you get them to work as a team and get those exponential? So don't, don't be complacent about talent. Make sure that you've got the right talent for the environment you're in and that they feel like they really you know, are contributing. And if you don't feel that way about your team, then you might want to reevaluate, you know, can you move things around a little bit and look at other people in the organization and, and maybe they are, you know, good to, to bring into your team as well. So I think that, that team area. And then I think the third advice is just go for it. All of this stuff is new. None of us knew how to do it. Don't let perfect get in, in the way. So often we're so used to only wanting to do things that we know will really work. And this is a new skill set. So, you know, kind of demonstrate for your team that it's okay not to have all the answers, not to do it perfectly. Um, Getting started is more important than getting it perfect. The way to get started is to just start. Just start. Yeah. Perfect. Let's end there. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your experience with us. It was lovely to talk to you. And thanks so much. I really appreciate getting the time to spend with you. Wonderful. You've been listening to the OKR Podcast. Subscribe in your favorite player so you never miss a moment. Thanks for listening. Until next time.